From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Congratulations, you found us. This is The Conspiracy Show. I'm your humble host, Richard Serrett. A special hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations, uh, the podcasts, of course, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com, and uh, don't forget, uh, and I mustn't forget uh, those of you, of course, who catch the live stream on YouTube when available through our HOA Hangout on Air. Incidentally, though, there is no HOA tonight. We'll resume the live stream next week. So, however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee welcome. TV director, filmmaker, writer, professor, Jeremy Kagan is standing by from his home in beautiful Venice Beach, California. Uh, Jeremy and I met for breakfast a few months ago in Venice Beach. We were introduced to each other by our mutual friend and acquaintance, Paul Davids, who's been on the program recently. He's the author of An Atheist in Heaven. And uh, I learned that Jeremy Kagan, early on in his television career, directed episodes of Columbo, The Columbo, with Peter Falk. And I must tell you, growing up, Columbo was my favorite and my brother David's favorite TV show of all time. So it was a real thrill hearing all these great stories uh, about Jeremy and working alongside the great late uh, Peter Falk. Uh, but tonight, this morning, uh, Jeremy is here to share with us a, another story, this one of a very personal nature that involves a remarkable near-death experience he had. And he'll share that in just a few moments. And just a reminder that we finally have an air date for the debut of Season 4 of the Conspiracy Show television program. Six new episodes will air across Canada on Vision TV starting Monday, June the 27th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Now write this down. Monday, June 27th, 9 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV and the... Season 4 will run through Monday, August the 1st. Again, Season 4, Conspiracy Show with yours truly, Richard Serrett, debuts across Canada on Vision TV, Monday, June 27th, 9 p.m. Eastern, and that'll run through Monday, August the 1st. Incidentally, for my American listeners, and I love my American listeners, uh, Seasons 1, 2, and 3 of The Conspiracy Show are available on Hulu and Amazon.com. All right, near-death experiences. Can't wait for this. Jeremy Kagan is an internationally recognized director, writer, producer of feature films and television, and a tenured professor. Some of his feature credits include the box office hits, Heroes, the political thriller, The Big Fix, The Chosen, and The Journey of Natty Gann. Remember that one? Uh, Among his many television uh, shows are Catherine, The Making of an American Revolutionary, and HBO's Conspiracy, The Trial of the Chicago Eight. Uh, which received an ACE Award for Best Dramatic Special. His film Roswell, The UFO Conspiracy, garnered a Golden Globe nomination, and he directed the pilot for the hit series Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. I mentioned Columbo, of course, uh, Chicago Hope. Um, he's won an Emmy for Dramatic Series uh, Directing when he directed West Wing and Spielberg's Taken. He's made films for the Doe Fund, which is the most successful program in America, helping the homeless, and for the Bioneers, which organizes leaders in ecology and social justice. Uh, he, Professor Kagan teaches graduate courses at the University of Southern California in directing and has created the Change-Making Media Lab, which has made projects on cancer prevention, obesity, and ADHD. He has a new TV, or a new film, rather, a new feature film starring Noah Wiley uh, that he'll tell us about called Shot. 
Jeremy Keg, and welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm glad to be here. We talked about, or I mentioned your um, your your CV off the top, and an impressive one at that. And it's it's interesting. You're in the middle of editing uh, a new drama called Shot, and obviously, you know, one of the major themes of that movie, you know, mortality, uh, which kind of nicely dovetails into our discussion uh, tonight about. Obviously about uh, life after death, and uh, we're going to talk about your ebook, uh, My Death: A Personal Guide a Guidebook. But but talk to, to us a little bit about this movie, Shot. Uh, Shot's a dramatic movie uh, about what one bullet does to three lives, um, and it really is about honestly the obsession we have as a culture with our guns. Um, and so I'm trying to deal with the responsibility we all have to have, whether we have a gun or we don't have a gun about how they're used, why they're used, and what happens as a consequence of their misuse, and particularly their easy availability for some people who really shouldn't be having them. So this is a powerful piece um, talking about how three wives intersect because a kid who's being bullied gets an illegal gun to protect himself, and the gun goes off accidentally and hits um, a man and his uh, wife, um, and uh, it hits the man, the wife is actually next to him. And what we do is we tell the story of all these three people, um, and we interweave their lives, and the man obviously is facing his own potential death and mortality. I mean, there are lines like saying, I don't want to die in this piece, and there's a possibility that in fact he will. There's something known as the golden hour once you get shot. And if you survive that hour, you may very well survive. How you survive, of course, is another question. That's also part of what our movie's about. But to survive in that hour becomes essential. And we tell the, our story once the uh, shot has happened in real time for that hour. So we're actually experiencing everything any of us would experience from the moment we go down to waiting on the ground for someone to come to help. If they do come to help to when they do, what happens to that and the ride that takes to get us to a place where we might be able to be helped in an ER and everything that happens in the hospital. And we should mention it's starring Noah Wiley. Yes, it is. He does an amazing job. I think it's one of the best things he's ever done. Noah's been concerned about this issue himself, which is one of the reasons why he joined in on making this movie. And a great log line. Yep, yep, what one bullet does to three lives. In many ways, it's what one bullet does to 15 lives if you actually look at it because the EMTs and the ER doctors and the police and everybody's affected by it. Um, in our medical system, insurance infected, everybody's affected by what happens with, with the one bullet. It's costly. Everybody pays. Right. So the theme, mortality and, and redemption, obviously, play, play large in that. And we're going to talk about that. But I, I want to go back. It's interesting. You're a, you're a paradox. You're a... Um, what's the old saying? Uh, you know, a riddle wrapped in a mystery dipped in a chocolatey coating. You're, you're, you grew up on the East Coast, Mount Vernon, which is near the Bronx, and your yep. father was a rabbi, but more of a humanist, really, wasn't he? He was also um, the first clergyman in New York to get a Ph.D. in psychotherapy. So he was taking his role as a as a person who was um, to be a service to his community that was both spiritual and, if you will, in this case, psychological. So um, he mixed those two, and that's kind of the environment I grew up in. But, but the, 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 the concepts of heaven and hell and an afterlife really was never discussed in your home, isn't, isn't that right? Yes, it's, it's true. Um, I grew up with um, what's known as Reform Judaism, and Reform Judaism was kind of a reaction to fanaticism in terms of, uh, sort of limited and very strict uh, formal behavior that was part of what Orthodox Judaism was about, which, by the way, was around for a thousand years. 
But once the, the, the community of Jews began to be more accepted within the European environment and certainly within our American environment, a lot of these things didn't have as much sway or hold. And so a lot of sort of the sort of behaviors like uh, um, being kosher, um, um, wearing a yarmulke, these things became not part of the reform movement. They felt that was a holdover from, uh, from uh, an ancient past and that the real values um, didn't need to be reflected in specific kinds of limited, what they thought, behaviors. And part of that limited behavior was the whole concept of heaven and hell. But actually in Judaism, the concept of heaven and hell is not very strong. There is the concept of what's called the neshoma, which means the soul. That's very strong. Although when I grew up, I knew nothing about Jewish spirituality because my father was much more, I would call a, a pragmatist and a social rabbi in terms of trying to provide his community with both psychological help, but also trying to make them be more responsible as a community to other communities around them. So he was very involved at that time when he was a rabbi with the civil rights movement. Um, so that was the issue. It was really how to be a good ethical human being right here and now, not because you would get something better from it or be punished because you didn't do it, but being a good and ethical human being now you do because it is the right thing to do now, not because you're going to get some payback from it. So that was the way I was raised. So the concept of heaven and hell was not something that was part of my youth, even though I had a clergyman for a father. Now, because you get a, I was able to get a good education, I got exposed to lots of other writers and, and, and artists who in fact did deal with heaven and hell, whether they were painters who painted heaven and hell, or whether they were composers who wrote music about that, or whether they were authors like Dante, who wrote an entire book about all the various, from, you know, the divine comedy from Inferno to Paradiso. So I got exposed to others ideas of heaven and hell, but I didn't grow up with it as a threat. I was I was not one of these kids who, when they were five years old, if you don't do this, you're going to go to hell. We didn't get that. Right, right. And then, uh, I mean, you, an interesting, I'm not sure how you came to be the, the director for The Chosen, uh, which is, what, is that 30, was 35 years ago you made that 1981, film? 1981. And what a, what a, although it feels like yesterday to me. And what a cast. You had Maximilian Schell, one of my favorites. Yeah. You had Rod Steiger, what a handful he must have been. Actually, he was fabulous because he knew that I knew more about the subject, which we were telling the story about, than he did. So he respected me. But I tell you, before I, meeting him, I was uh, intimidated because such a genius of an actor and I was a young director. So the idea of sort of telling this kind of incredibly experienced guy who had given such great performances what to do was intimidating, but inevitably he saw that you know, I cared deeply about the subject, and the subject really was about tolerance. That's what the movie was really about. Right. Can, uh, we, can, we, can we accept differences? And um, so it was It was kind of a magical experience working with him because he was so committed to, to giving us the best performance he could. And um, it, was, it was fabulous to watch him um, take on a character, both the look of that character as well as the accents of that character and become steeped in who this particular person was. And that's one of the geniuses of a great actor that they actually can become the character that they play. And for those who haven't seen the movie, it's uh, Robbie, a young Robbie Benson, a teenage, there's a, a reformed Jew uh, and an Orthodox or a conservative Jew and a, a befriends a, a young conservative Jew. 
Actually, it's, Orthodox a, it's, a young, it's, it's sort of a modernist Jew, young Jew, who um, this is right during the end of World War II, um, who befriends a very ultra-Orthodox, and in this case, Hasidic, which is a very specific um, uh, approach to Judaism. Um, those people who have been to Israel and gone to that area called Mea Sharim may have seen lots of people who look like these. They, they almost look like they've come from another century. Um, they wear clothes that are specific to them, um, oftentimes wearing black all the time and um if you're in certain areas in brooklyn um these are also areas where there are lots of Hasidim. it's a group of people who had um a very very specific and very um strict uh, behavior code um but also have a deep connection to the spiritual side of judaism which by the way is something as i said i didn't grow up with so when i was making this movie the chosen and doing my research i began spending time with the Hasidic groups and individuals in Brooklyn, and I got exposed to their world, and, and and I got exposed also to the spirituality that was part of their culture, and that spirituality is deeply embedded with ideas of the soul and the soul's um, emergence and its development and its connection with the eternal and the idea that in, even there's a concept of a kind of a little bit different than let's say eastern religions but there's also a concept of a regeneration a kind of rebirth a re- restoration of, of of your being so that when you die in this sense you don't die um idea again that there's a, a kind of distinction between um, two ideas of the world that exists now and the world that is to come. Now, some people might talk about that as heaven, but that's not really what they're talking about. I think they're really talking about the idea that there's the potential of all of us to truly be compassionate toward each other, to truly be tolerant of each other, to truly do good work, to help each other, to be of service. And when we all are doing that, then the world to come is now. All right, Jeremy, we're going to take a time out. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk about uh, your initial experience in a Lakota sweat lodge and how that sort of changed the trajectory of your spiritual life. Director, producer, writer, artist, professor, filmmaker, Jeremy Kagan is with us and we'll uh, continue this conversation on the other side. Beaming across North America... The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with a filmmaker, professor, producer, director, Jeremy Kagan, and um, we'll tell you how to get his uh, ebook. It's called My Death, a Personal Guidebook. The website is The Near Death and Life of Jeremy Kagan, K A G A N. Uh, so, how did you come to uh, find yourself in a, uh, in a Lakota sweat ceremony? Well, I was lucky enough to have some friends who were sort of exposing each other to new ways of looking at life, new experiences. These are men's group that I attended with various people. So I was going through that at this particular time. So the, the, the mid nineties. Um, and one of the things that one of my friends was, um, was offering was to experience a sweat lodge. And I knew nothing about sweat lodges. I had no idea what they were. Um, and what they are, I found out, was something that's literally, it's done all around the world, and it's been done for thousands and thousands of years. And essentially, it's where you enter a dark, very hot space for a certain amount of time. And because of the heat, 
and the sweat and for me a lot of discomfort. There's a process of kind of purification. It's kind of hard to lie when you're really, really hot and uncomfortable. And in the Lakota ceremony, which um, has been ex- the Lakota have allowed to this to be experienced by people who have been not part of the tribe over the last uh, maybe 30 years. And that particular experience, you go through a number of stages when you're in this darkness. You go through a stage of, of where you do prayers for yourself. You do another stage where you do prayers for others. There's another stage where you give away something that's, that, you know, that's, that you're holding on to. And there's a quiet phase. It lasts, oh, maybe an hour, an hour and a half, and extremely hot and uncomfortable. And I've done a, done a number of these, and they've been very kind of remarkably transformative. In one, I remember with my eyes open in the darkness, and this is not the norm for me at all, although I'm a major dreamer and I dream every night and often remember the dreams and they're, they're, they're vast kinds of experiences, but this was looking out in the darkness, in the blackness, and actually seeing another sort of dream in its reality while I was totally awake. It was an amazing experience, which I'd had at another sweat lodge. And this was the day before my birthday, which was in December. Cold up in the mountains of, 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 of uh, Malibu here in California, very cold even. And I was doing a sweat. I thought it would be a good way to bring in the next year and sort of clean myself up and let go of some things. So I was doing this. And in the process, of, but it wasn't very effective. It wasn't one of the ones that I wasn't having the kind of visions that I just described or anything particular about this one. But as I stepped outside of the lodge, it was very cold. And the lodge is incredibly hot. And I fell to the ground. And I literally, in the process of falling to the ground, lost total control of my body. Was it the shock of going from the extreme heat into the cold air? Yes. I mean, if you were later, as I talked to a number of doctors to find out about this, this literally was hypothermia. Now, in, in hypothermia, which is the, you know, going from hot to cold, you actually can die. People do. I didn't know this, of course, at the time, nor did I know this until many you know, weeks and months later when I was talking to people about my experience and that was the, the, the medical Western sciences wanted to say, well, what happened? You know, what could have happened? And that's what, you know, if a doctor had been around, maybe he or she would have recognized this as hypothermia. But what happened specifically was I lost all control. I could not move anything. I could not, in fact, soon feel anything. So all of my physical sensations were gone. At first, I thought I'd get over this in a couple of minutes. I was just having some strange fainting spell. And, you know, like a fainting spell, you'll get over it. But I was noticing I wasn't getting over it at all. In fact, what was happening is it was getting more challenging in the sense that not only could I not move anything or feel anything, I also couldn't see anything anymore. And I stopped hearing as well. Oh, boy. So my entire, if you will, body functions shut down. Now, I thought at first you know, I was supposed to be directing the next morning on a set, and I thought, oh, well, <laughs> that's the end of that. You know, my career is going to take a definitely down t- turn you're when actually, I show actually, up the set because I'm in a hospital. And the reason is because I was in some sweat lodge. That won't that won't scan well in Hollywood. That's interesting that you're actually having this conscious process. Exactly. In fact, one of the things that was incredible about this entire experience is that what I learned was that consciousness never ends Mm -hmm. your body ends your ego definition of self ends 
but consciousness doesn't. But at this time, it was still my consciousness. It was still Jeremy Kagan thinking, I can't, won't be on a set tomorrow. And you're trying very hard to hold on to that. Exactly. It was then Jeremy Kagan thinking, Mike, you know, what they're going to take me, they're going to call paramedics. I'm going to be taken to some kind of hospital. And since I can't see and can't talk, my family will come. I won't recognize them. I won't be able to communicate with them. If this stays the same, I'm going to lose all connection to everybody I know. And then the next thought came, which was, what if I'm dying? Hmm. And I began to believe that must be what's happening. And I, in the sense of, although I couldn't move, there was a kind of like energetic sensibility. Well, if I hold on to all my energy, like if we all held, you know, you hold your breath for as long as you can, I'll be able to hold on to life. And I, in some fashion, tried to do that, to hold on to me. Right. And inevitably, like trying to hold on to your breath, I couldn't hold on any longer. And I let go. Hmm. And that letting go was the most blissful, peaceful, serene, calm, almost joyful flowing out of everything in every direction. And it was so stunning in its perfection and ease that literally, if that's what dying is, wow, dying is beautiful. And what did you see at this point? Nothing. Nothing. I was in, but I was still conscious. And when I had this blissful experience and then my consciousness, which was still mine, said, wow, that was amazing. If that's the transition of death, if it's that easy, you know, some cultures talk about actually part of Orthodox Jewish culture talk about death is like taking a hair out of a glass of milk. So gentle in that transition. If that was true, which seemed to be true at this moment for me. Wow. But then I asked the question, what next? Mm -hmm. I still had a sense of time. What next? Well, now my mind started to, because it was still my mind, started to bubble and bubble and bubble. And in the process, it said, what if there is a heaven or a hell? And then I thought, well, I, you know, I've been kind of a good person, but I've also been kind of a schmuck, too. <laughs> and I thought, what if I were to go to hell? And instantaneously, I went to my version of hell. Your well, version. I say my version because it was specific to who I am. But it was absolutely horrendous. Can you spend a few moments telling us what your version of hell looked like? That I'm going to leave to any because it's in a way eschatological and grotesque. So better to read it. And my book is um, you know is filled with illustrations. They're pretty weird illustrations. You'll get that hell if you want. But I I think that anybody who's ever even thought about hell will probably go to his or her own hell. But here's the issue. You don't feel anything. It's all gone. Remember, I said I couldn't feel anything. So even though there was a visual capacity to it and a kind of, you know, um, judgmental capacity to it, I suddenly realized it was literally an illusion. It was like a 
projected movie. Mm. You know how we believe in these things. I make these things. As we, you know, we, 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 if they're really good, we think they're happening. Well, as it should be with a filmmaker. Yeah, a manifestation as manifestation of the mind, and then exactly. Oof, but I, you know, my mind didn't realize until my mind realized, as you just said, this was merely an illusion. This mm. was a projected bunch of images. And the second I had this realization, it was gone. It dissolved. Just like, you know, turning off the television, it was gone. And what I realized at this moment was that I was in a place that was beyond judging things bad and good. It was beyond that. It was a place of oneness where both the most horrific and the most beatific are all part of one thing, all connected. And by this realization I stepped out of that place of judgment which limits us so much in our own lives. We're constantly judging ourselves and constantly finding wrong with ourselves and wrong with others and therefore separating from each other. This was a realization that that's, this was a place and a, and a kind of space without being out of space that was beyond that kind of judgment. This was a place of oneness. And then I began, which I later learned, because I knew nothing about this until after the experience, a very kind of classic near-death journey, where I was in a kind of motion passing through, in this case, a misty field, um, which is almost full of clouds, seemingly to be on a kind of almost diagonal movement upwards. I was on a ride, in a way, um, again, feeling it incredibly peaceful now because I was out of the illusion of hell and sensing to my right and left beings that I couldn't quite see, but they felt like, are these my 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 parents and grandparents and, and ancestors from my past and great past? And are they sort of there? Are they watching? Are they communicating in some subtle way? Uh, some people I know from talking to many people since in many years since this experience, I've had near-death experience, talk about hearing voices, encountering people. This was more suggestions of. Right. But, but still very much the classic NDE. Yes. yes. Um, and again, the if there's feeling to be applied here, there was wonder. There was and no judgment and no fear. Fear was gone. Hmm. So all there was was the awesomeness of whatever was going to be the next, if you will, encounter. And three days after the experience, I remembered what that next encounter was, which was so profoundly shocking. Because it was, and this experience, you know, some people say that they've had their lives replayed for them. Right, right. My experience was I had the history of humanity replayed for me. That everything that, again, limited by the filter of this particular consciousness, my consciousness, that is Jeremy consciousness, which had already been gone, but limited by that filter. Everything I'd ever experienced, everything I'd ever read, everything I'd ever seen, every piece of history I ever knew, every piece of music I ever heard, every movie, every television show, everything that I'd experienced, all happened simultaneously. I don't even know how words sort of limit you to say what this is, but it's like, People say that, you know, they have the experience of their whole life passes for them in a nanosecond. 
Right. I'm just I have I'm having a vision from that Albert Brooks movie when he's being represented at the review by Rip Torn. <laughs> yes, great. <laughs> you you had no legal representation. <laughs> oh, no, I was beyond needing one at this moment. This was just this was merely the ride. This is not needing to defend myself. All right, I was, I was already there. <laughs> I have to... Defenses were all gone. Okay, we're going to take a quick timeout. We'll come back. Jeremy Kagan, producer, director, writer, professor. And uh, the author of a uh, an ebook entitled "My Death: A Personal Guidebook." Uh, you can get the Kindle edition, and all you need to do is go to the Near Death and Life of Jeremy Kagan, and it's illustrated by Jeremy with some beautiful paintings and some bizarre paintings as well, as you can imagine. Back with more of our conversation right here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, and we're back with Jeremy Kagan. My Death, a personal guidebook. It's an ebook, and again, the website, the near and, sorry, the near death and life of jeremykagan.com, K-A-G-A-N for Kagan. All right, so, um, when, uh, we were so rudely interrupted, the, the, um, the review or this, uh, you know, experiencing everything that you had experienced in this life, everything, every movie you'd seen, every book that you'd read, all comes flooding into your, mind instantaneously i mean i can't even i I mean i can't even imagine uh, it was like an explosion as if you took everything and and squished it into one nanosecond everything you've ever experienced in a sense this was the life but it wasn't you know a review of my childhood i mean if that stuff was there but there was some so much more sort of profound beings there gandhi was there moses was there um those are people who knows from eastern philosophy but the buddha was there ramana harshman was there jesus was there they were all sort of there within this sort of explosion all of their sort of my awareness all the and also you know some negativities or the, the horrors of war i mean you know and some great artists they were, they were all occurred to me as as one occurrence, I mean, it's like if we took everything we're doing right now and squished it into one moment and all the words were able to be heard. And here's an f- interesting thing. I don't think I've ever actually, actually said this before, but that um, in the, the, the revelation on um, Mount Sinai of what is known as the Torah, right. which is, uh, the Old Testament, this was supposedly given – in a, and I didn't learn this to many, many years later. I didn't know this before. Simultaneously, all the words were heard at the same time. And this was, a, you know, a spiritual sort of revelation for a million people that experienced this. Like a digital download. Uh, it, it, it exactly all compressed into one moment. In a sense, the matrix moments when you shove one of those things in and a second later, you know how to do all the martial arts. This was all of that. All of history, all of human experience, all of its creativity, all of its negativity, all in one. And then I moved past that. And I moved past that into the firmament. And at this point, again, with incredible serenity, um, and, and joyful ease, um, and, and as I said, no non-judgment, I sensed that whatever consciousness that I actually was at this moment, which was just consciousness, just receiving, in a way, just receiving whatever was to be received, that there was a kind of goal that I was about to, or this beingness of me, or the consciousness that I I was at this moment, become part of the firmament, as if I was about to become one of the, a star within the gazillions of galaxies 
that exist. And that's what, where I was headed. And then all of a sudden, the entire universe, the cosmos contracted and it contracted into nothingness. And at that point, I did lose consciousness. That was kind of a nothingness that was the end of everything. It's interesting. You, you lost consciousness, although <laughs> to the, to those on the outside looking at your, down at your, your body, they would say that you had already lost consciousness. Yes, that would, I probably, you know, as I talked to other people, this was from their point of view, this was a 45 minute experience that they saw and they left me alone. I think someone had taken my pulse earlier on and just thought, oh, he's having come some kind of weird, you know, experience. Just let him have the experience. Um, and there was, from their perceptions, there was some, some movement during the latter part of that time and some noise that was made from this particular body. I suspect if there is an understanding of, to explain anything, that there was probably a minute or two, maybe even less, when the hyperthermic reality was such that my being was literally in jeopardy. That is, my physical being was in jeopardy. And I suspect all of this that happened that, you know, it's taking me, you know, a book to write, not that long of a book, but I could spend lots of time defining it, probably all happened in a nanosecond as well. A nanosecond. But when you were having this experience... Did you have any concept? Did it seem like it was going on for hours or? It seemed long, but a sense of, and since there was movement and change, that does suggest time. Um, but there was jumps in time, like you can have in a dream. Um, so there was a, 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 a kind of, it, it had its own time. And I was, again, because I felt that I was on a, on a death journey or the journey post death, I think the whole sense of time was gone. That, so I can't, you know, I can't really define it in terms of the words that we define in terms of time. Right. And at that, just before, you know, the lights went out, had you made your peace and had you said to yourself, I'm ready, I want to, wherever I'm going, I, I like this ride, I'm going. The two times that I, I, that, that was true was the first was when I actually had to let go. Initially, I did everything I could to not let go. In other words, I didn't want to die at all. And I don't want to die now. I agree. Even with this experience, I'm not interested in dying because I have no idea what the next experience when I really do die is going to be vastly different. Although they do say that if you die before you die, when you die, you don't die. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> we'll wrap our heads around that as we head on into a break. My Death, a personal guidebook. Jeremy Kagan is a director, producer, writer, professor, and uh, you can you can uh, download that book at the near death and life of jeremykagan.com and we'll continue this conversation in mere moments. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Jeremy Kagan is with us. You will know him from such films as The Big Fix, Heroes, The Journey of Natty Gan, The Chosen, which we discussed earlier, and uh, his new film, which is uh, called Shot. One bullet, or one, uh, what's the log line again for this, uh, for the movie? What, what one bullet does to three lives. Yes, and that should be in theaters when? Well, we'll, we'll hope it's in theaters in the fall, but we're just finishing it, so the time of distribution has not been locked in yet. All right, and it stars uh, Noah Wiley, so people will look forward to that, I'm sure. 
Okay, so we were in the middle of this, um, well, nearing the end, I guess, of this uh, near-death experience. You came out of a, uh, a sweat lodge. You were up in the mountains of uh, Malibu. And uh, anyone who's been to one of these Lakota sweat ceremonies will know how hot it you know it can be imagine you're at the club for a, you know for a schwitz but it's i mean you know very intense you yeah. come out of that into this cold weather and you collapse and as you uh, you know were, were recounting had this incredible uh near death experience so the lights go out and you know it's interesting happens? the lights went on rather than went out ah okay <laughs> i feel like i feel like the gift of this in, you know, is that i got to learned something that I didn't know. And I got to learn that consciousness itself never ends, that your body does, um, you know, who you are at this moment, that's going to end. Uh, not something to look forward to, I'm sure. But the one thing that doesn't end is consciousness. Now, maybe that's a motivation for you to say, mm, does that mean is there an afterlife? And could I come back? Well, in this case, I came back as me. You know, a friend of mine once said, you know, you're lucky. You could have come back as somebody else, which is quite true. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I was out far enough that when I came sort of zooming back into literally zooming back into Earth and then zooming back into the Malibu months and zooming back into the, where the sweat lodge was and then zooming back into that body, it happened to be this body I'd left. But maybe I could have taken the left turn and gone into some other body. That's right. That's right. That's my it's that old uh, line from Woody Allen. I think it's from Sleeper, the and it's my great fear of reincarnation is that I'll have to sit through the ice capades again. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things is, you know, there's also this whole idea of a reoccurrence that, would, that in fact, you live your life over and over and over again from some uh, mystical uh, sages who talk about that until you maybe get it right. Right. So were you disappointed when you found yourself uh, back in your body, essentially? Actually, what I when I gained back my physical capacities um, where I could actually begin to move and I kind of moved around like a child honestly I mean, literally I was sort of like in that sense was being reborn as a little being but as I looked around I felt such open hearted love for everything there was this delight and joy about being able to feel the cold, to look at the mountains around me, to look at the people that were still by the fire, to see the fire. And I just felt everybody radiated this kind of wonderful, positive energy. And I, my heart was so non-judgmental that I was just in absolute joy to be where I was with all the beings that I was with. So my return was this gift of enormous sense of open-hearted love mm -hmm. for everything and everyone. Now, you know, after a number of hours, I get back into my car, and well, I had this fabulous experience, but part of my returned mind and in returned judgmental mind, it didn't all disappear. You know, it wasn't like I was... Some people have transformative experiences like this, and they are forever changed. Yes, yes. Even physically, they they I've physically look changed, but not 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 so much so that I become 
uh, I, that I've surrendered all my judgments. I still have them and I still have my doubts and I still have all my neuroses. They haven't gone away. Well, all that, the ego and all that comes with the spacesuit, right? So yeah, it's, absolutely. You Very well spoken. We're prisoners in a sense. But there's also recognition though that, that now that I am back in quote my spacesuit, I can still look at you in yours and say, you in there? Mm-hmm. As Ram Dass says. Right. Wait, right. I'm in here. I don't know how I got in here, but I'm here too. And in the sense we both can recognize we're far more than the spacesuit that we're in. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I've gone to movies where that have been, you know, momentarily transformative. And you, and you leave the movie feeling so inspired and it's like, what am I doing with my life? And I've got to get out there. And I, you know, why can't we all get along? You know, th- those types of movies. And you've made those types of movies. It's true. Uh, now. But, uh, as you say, it wasn't... It wasn't, um, it wasn't transformative 100%. I mean, but there's still remnants there. I think there's a, there's an awareness and a memory. Mm. And it's an, it's a gift, honestly, for you to be talking to me because then I am re-experiencing this for myself. And, you know, if this affects a a listener and they say, wow, you know, that sounds like something to be considered that the consciousness is, uh, is that, that maybe my fear of death doesn't have to be quite what it was because there's the kind of ease in the process of moving from one place to another, if you will, one, one sort of form to another from this one into another that is can be quite beautiful and peaceful and joyful even and then there's some wonder and awe that may I experience afterwards since i did experience that it's good for me to remind myself because you know you can forget when things are get get kind of heavy in your own life that in fact you have experienced bliss and joy and if you remind yourself that you've experienced bliss and joy to some degree it brings it back into your consciousness and you may behave you know a little differently knowing that that's true has, that you can feel love for everybody and everything has has how has that experience changed you as a filmmaker well i think i've taken on a greater responsibility in the kinds of movies that I make in the sense that that I feel like when you're telling somebody a story, you are also shifting their consciousness to some degree. And you can tell them a story that, in fact, will make them feel negative or bad or irrelevant. Or you can tell them a story that potentially inspires them to feel better about themselves, maybe inspires them to want to do something for others. And the kind of movies I've been making over the last years have been more in that vein. Um, and um, one of the things we have at the, that I established at the University of Southern California, where I'm a professor, is a, something called the Change Making Media Lab. And the Change Making Media Lab actually makes movies, advocacy movies for various organizations um, that are trying to make our world better. Um, whether they're health organizations or environmentally concerned organizations. And so a lot of my energy as a creator has been to do this kind of filmmaking. And I'm sure that it's responsive to some degree to that experience. And I feel also that, that just the way I relate to people um, allows me to be reminded of the connection that we really all have on the deepest level. So there are times when that also functions well. It also has helped me deeply, by the way, in terms of working with actors, because it's allowed me to understand that we inevitably, in a way, are everybody that ever was, just like that part of the experience that I mentioned. And therefore, we can find that person 
within us. We can find the 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 the, uh, the Mother Teresa in us, as well as obviously the Attila, the Hun. They're both there, but we can make a choice to. In fact, that's what life is about now, making choices to be that kind of person because that kind of person already exists within us. And that's a reflection of this experience as well. Self-actualized. In in the sense, yes. Knowing that there's so much more to you than you think. In fact, sometimes thinking is a limitation. And by the way, I have to say this quickly because, you know, that the title, that the, the access to, to this book can also be accessed just by typing in the words of my death, uh, a personal guidebook, and it'll come up, you know, on, on, uh, you know, Amazon on your computer, so if you, if you were interested in learning more from what I experienced. Uh, I, I want to talk to you briefly about, um, uh, I was introduced to you by our mutual friend, Paul Davids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had breakfast in, in Venice Beach, and, and Paul was on uh, this program recently talking about An Atheist in Heaven, the book he co-authored about right. uh, Forrest J. Ackerman. Yep. And uh, I wanted to get your take. I mean, I'm, I, I know that Paul has sort of kept you up to date on that whole investigation, but after now having gone through this experience, how do you, how do you perceive, I mean, this is a, an after-death communication that has taken place supposedly between uh, Forey Ackerman, Forrest J. Ackerman, a, um, a literary uh, agent, science fiction writer, the editor of, um, of you know, famous monsters of Filmland magazine, and, and Paul. Right. Uh, all well documented in this book. What do you make of that whole investigation? Well, Paul and I met um, because Paul shared with me, we both were the uh, in the initial group at a place called the American Film in- Institute, and Paul shared with me his experience with his children of um, um, actually seeing a UFO and then his pursuit of finding out what that really was. And in the process, the two of us ended up making a movie um, that was uh, called it's called Roswell. It's a great movie. Edited for Showtime. And it's about the UFO conspiracy to some, some degree. And so what I went through in this process of meeting all, all kinds of people who had all these kinds of experience and making this story about the famous Roswell incident, uh, what I, I understood on another level, and it's in the movie itself, is that, and this reflects my, my near-death experience, or sometimes I call through-death experience, that in, in essence there is this reality, this physical reality that we know, and there are coterminous realities that we access through many other ways. And in those coterminous realities, we actually are in communication with potential beings, certainly energies, from other, if you will, levels of existence. And so, it, it, in fact, one person once said to me, you know, it, 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 we don't live in a universe. We live in multiverses, right. which is something that physicists now sometimes are talking about as well, mm-hmm. which means there's an overlapping of different realities. This reality is so dense that, you know, and so, and so complex that it's enough for most of us <laughs> just to deal with it. But there are access and openings to other realities that, in fact, are going on simultaneously with ours. Now, when we try to either visualize or verbalize what they are, we are limited by the limits of our visual sensibilities. You know, we only see so much. There's lots more but in, in terms of literally what's in front of our faces that we just don't see because our eyes and brain don't allow us to, to see them, but they're there. Um, and, of course, that, that applies to language itself. So what happens is 
that events happen. We've all had the coincidences that we just don't understand. Some of us have had, you know, I've seen that ghost over there or, or potentially actually quote seeing UFOs. I believe all of these things are true. That there is an interface of realities. And if our minds can be deeply open and not limited by our thinking, then that deeper consciousness can sometimes allow for the communication and even the interface events to happen, like you're talking about in Paul's book, and then, in fact, are talked about so much in various UFO experiences. So, for me, this is all part of a deeper on wider truth that is happening simultaneously to the ones that we experience all the time. And you studied, uh, when you were in, I guess it was graduate school at the American Film Institute, that was uh, Greystone Mansion. That was haunted, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And I must say, working late at night at 2 or 3 o'clock, and I'm not one into ghosts, actually, but working late at night, sometimes on some of our projects, they, there were creaks in the walls, and one would wonder what they were all about. Um, but, you know, I work, listen, I work with a, a, a phenomenal animal that was part wolf on this movie, The Journey of Natty Gann. Yes, and there was a yes. moment when we were approaching a, um, uh, we were going to shoot in this little environment, this little uh, room, and all of a sudden this, this animal wouldn't go in the room. Mm. We found out later that someone had been killed in that room. Wow. And clearly the animal picked up yeah. that energy that was still existent in that space and wasn't going in there. I believe it. I believe it. Jeremy, yes. I have enjoyed this conversation immensely. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you very much for spending the time. My Death, a personal guidebook, and you can get that at Amazon.com or The Near and Death, sorry, The Near Death and Life of JeremyKagan.com. Thanks again, Jeremy. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, and come on. Back.